two-minute warning. Uh, many of you guys know what that's all about. If you're a sports fan, if you watch the NFL at all, you know and understand this concept of the two-minute warning. But many of you, I'll bet, probably don't know the history behind it. Where did it come from? Why do we still have it? Well, the history behind the two-minute warning is fairly simple. Years ago, when um, the NFL got started, they didn't have stadium clocks. They didn't have a clock in the stadium anywhere where anybody could tell how much time was left on the clock at all or how much time was left in the game. They had to rely on the referees. So at the end of each half, right before halftime and right before the end of the game, the referees would stop play. They would stop play, they would give each team an extra timeout, and they would make sure they would take the watch that they carried in their pocket, out of their pocket, the official time of the game, and they would make sure that there were two minutes left. They would go to each of the coaches and let them know, Coach, you only have two minutes left before half or before the end of the game. And that's how it got started. Well, in the 1960s, technology changed enough, and they started to put clocks in the stadium which would have done away with the need for the two-minute warning, right? They could have said, hey, we don't need this anymore. We can tell time. We can see how much time is left. But they decided to keep the two-minute warning because it had become such a strategic part of the game that they said, we're going to keep it, even though they can tell how much time is on the clock. Um, It's part of the game now. Now, the two-minute warning, there's no two-minute warning in college football, Maybe they're smart enough, right? Coaches in college football to tell how much time is left so that they get it, right? They're there. Um, arena football, it's a fast-paced game. They get one minute. They tell them there's a one-minute warning. Our slower neighbors to the north, uh, Canadian football, they need three minutes uh, to get there. I don't know. Go, go for the bronze. That's what I've heard. Um, anyway, it's game strategy. Game strategy makes a big difference, Right? And you've watched this. If you've watched football at all, you've seen that the strategy of the game changes as teams get close to the end, whether it's at the end of a half or the end of the game. You can see strategy change. How they use timeouts becomes very important. Um, clock management is a big part of the game, especially during that time period. Um, play calling. Do you, you stay away from the sidelines, or do you call plays that drive you to the sidelines so you can stop the clock if necessary? It becomes a big part of the game. And I guess the same way for us in life. And, and it's not whether you're down to the last two minutes of your life or the last two days of your life. That's not the concept. The concept is what do you do when the stakes are the highest? How do you get to those decisions? How do you live your life leading up to that? And then when you get to those decisions, what do you do? How do you make those type of decisions? Now, the story that we're going to talk about this morning is um, a guy by the name of Samson. He's an Old Testament character. Samson is one of those stories that um, you're going to hear me say it a couple times. You don't want to be like Samson. This isn't a story to say, hey, try and be more like Samson today. He's not the hero of the story. We'll get to that a little bit later. And I'm just going to skip a rock across some of his stories. He's got several, and we could spend days probably talking about Samson and some of the dumb things that he did. We're going to hit some highlights, and we're going to hit some lowlights of his life. Um, And we're going to be in in Judges chapters 13 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, um, I want you to turn there. I want you to be able to see this. If you have your phones, get your phones on, um, your Bible apps open, Judges chapters 13 through 16. I'm going to read these four chapters to you this I'm joking. I'm not going to read out of Judges four chapters this morning. You can go back and read through some of these. I'm going to give you some highlights. And Samson's feats 
are amazing. Some of the things that this guy did, I'm just like, wow, that's legendary, um, what he came up with and what he did. But it's his flaws that prove him fail. The flaws of this dude's life are not very good. Um, revenge and romance prove his greatest weaknesses in his life. Revenge and romance. And it's often his weakness for women that get him into trouble, that lead him to revenge, that gets him in more trouble, and then that revenge cycle just keeps going. Um, he was extremely gifted, but he was not very godly. And he looked strong on the outside, but man, the, the dude had no self-control on the inside. And we're going to learn some huge lessons from him. Now, if this was, and I know it was made into a movie, but it was, uh, I think, a smaller rated movie. If this was a real, like, that Hollywood really did this up, and if I were to really tell you this story, it would be an R-rated plus story. I mean, this story has a lot. It's the type of story that oftentimes you want to do this. Is this really in this book? Um, This story contains parties and sex and lying and trickery and deception and murder, mass killings, wild animals, fire, prostitution, pride, backstabbing. The list goes on. It would be one of those that if you were to read it before you watch the movie, you might have to think to yourself, maybe I shouldn't watch this. Maybe this is a movie that maybe I shouldn't watch. But I want to start with some important information um, for us today. I think this is important for us to get to this morning. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read this one to you. Um, Judges 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for four years. Now. Whether you agree with some of this or not, and how things were handled back in the Old Testament, take this as history. This is a historical story. This is history in the making here, and we're trying to understand it this way. The Philistines were evil people. They weren't just the enemy. They were evil people against the God of Israel. And they did some things that were horrid towards the Israelites and God's people and God himself. And so we've got to understand that this was an enemy of God's people. And it's interesting for us to note in this chapter and in this story here, the Israelites did not come back to God. Oftentimes, after years of persecution by the enemy, God's people would finally get fed up with it. And they would come begging back to God, God, help us. God, save us. God, what are you going to do to get us through? And it didn't happen on this one. God had to intervene. God was the one that stepped in. God had to get a breakthrough. And so he came back to his people. And he appears to a man and his wife, um, a husband and wife. And he tells them that they're going to have a son. The son is Samson. This is a story we're getting ready to hear. And this son, Samson, is going to deliver the Israelites from these evil people, the Philistines. Um, this appearance of an angel to a husband and wife telling them they're going to have a baby has only happened a few times in the history of mankind. This is a pretty big deal. Uh, it happened to Isaac um, in the Old Testament. It happened to John the Baptist. It happened to Jesus. It happened to my parents before I was born. I mean, it's just very, I'm joking. It didn't. Um, this is a big deal. So being called out like this, um, Samson was set apart even in his mother's womb. Even before he was born, he was known as someone special 
God had a special blessing and calling on his life, and it's a big deal. Okay, so before we jump into the stories, I want to get just a little technical, a little geeky with you um, in Old Testament scripture stuff. And I want to take us back to Numbers chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to show you on the screen um, what this is about. And in Numbers 6, it defines what a Nazarite vow is. And this is Samson. He was being called out to be a Nazarite um, judge for Israelites. For the Israelites. And he was making this vow before God. So this was a commitment between God and Samson. And the Nazarite vow was described in number six. And here are the top three things that that a Nazarite vow contained. Number one was this. They had to avoid contact with grapes and or the drinking of wine. And you're like, really? Grapes? (laughs) That was part of a vow that they had? So it was like this. They weren't to get drunk. They weren't to have any wine. Um, And therefore, here's the line, let's draw it back here just to be safe. Just in case you ate some grapes and they were already fermented, um, we don't want that to take place, so let's draw the line back here. So they were going to an extra length than everybody else did to show how important this was to them. So, okay, that's the first one. Um, Here's the next one. Never touch a dead thing. Anything, whatever, whether it was human or an animal, it doesn't matter. Any kind, of any kind, nothing, and that would defile them. That would um, make them unclean, and so they backed it up and said, just, just don't be around anything that has died so that you don't accidentally touch that. Okay, and here's the third one. Never get a haircut. Never shave your beard, right? Never shave anything, never cut your hair just to grow the whole time. Never get a haircut. Let your hair grow. Now, you and I might look at these and go, those are weird. Okay? They might be. All right? This is the Old Testament covenant. This was a covenant that was made between Samson and God. The Nazarite vow. Now, before we get into the story, I want want you to to hear this. Um, Sometimes, guys, we do stupid stuff, right? And I don't think this is any excuse. Like, I hate the statement, boys will be boys, because it gives sometimes us an excuse to say, well, we do stupid things. It's not an excuse. We, we, shouldn't, we should be real men in this. But sometimes boys just do stupid stuff. Samson, we're going to hear a lot about his stupid stuff, but I came across this video um, a couple weeks ago that I just have to share before we go any further. Watch this. So chapters 14, 15, 16 tell several stories. I'm going to jump through these pretty quick and give you a highlight of who this guy is. And then we're going to learn some lessons from him. All right. So he went to the wrong place and met the wrong woman. Now, we've heard whether you agree with it or not, he he went into enemy territory. He went over to the Philistines and he fell in love with this woman because she was beautiful. He said, that's the one. I want to marry her. 
And you might be thinking, well, we should be able to marry whoever we want, right? That's beside the point. This is a historical lesson. The Israelites and the Philistines, this was not supposed to happen. So he wants this one. Comes back home, tells his family that's the one. And so they move ahead with this process. On his way to his bachelor party and his wedding, he's getting ready for this big event. And they do it upright. Um, They have big parties during this time period for weddings. And he's on his way to his bachelor party and his wedding and he makes a stop and he steps into a vineyard what's in a vineyard grapes <laughs> lots of grapes mess up number one he goes there but his role and his goal for going there is to buy booze for his bachelor party oh, that's my assumption at least that's why he's going to a vineyard it's not to get some grapes it's probably to get some wine to take to his bachelor party because he's going to throw it up right. He's going to do it right. Well, while he's in this vineyard around grapes buying wine for his bachelor party, a lion comes along. And this is a weird part of the story. I'm like, why they, you know, what's the weird part of the story? Here's a lion, big deal. If I saw a lion in a vineyard, I'd run the other way or I'd try and get out as fast as I can. But the story goes that Samson kills the lion. But he doesn't just kill the lion like with a gun or a bow and arrow it says with his bare hands which one makes me go wow this dude's tough this dude's crazy his bare hands he kills a lion but what happens if you kill a lion with your bare hands you're touching it right two out of three he's already he's already wasted two out of his three covenants that he had made with god his vows that he had made with god He's already blown those. But he moves on. He goes on to his bachelor party. And he decides, I I know ladies, uh, when you have baby showers or wedding showers, you play games, right? I hear stories about this. Samson, at his bachelor party, he played a game with his dudes. And there were 30 of them. He had 30 guys in his wedding party. It was a big wedding party. And he, he made a deal with them. He shared with them a riddle. And he said, if any of you guys can figure out this riddle, I will buy you all new clothes. Well, they didn't know the answer to the riddle because only Samson and one other person knew, which was his bride-to-be. It's the only people that knew the answer to the riddle. Well, his buddies found out that she knew, and they coerced her into telling them. They told Samson the right answer, and so he had to live up to his part of the deal, buy them all new clothes. But instead of buying them new clothes, he goes out and he kills 30 Philistine men takes their clothes and gives those clothes to his buddies. Now, if you have to take clothes off of a dead person, you're probably going to touch them, right? So here's another way around that. and Or towards his number two thing, that he's touching even more dead things. But now he's embarrassed. Now he doesn't want to even go through with the wedding, so he says, I'm out. And he leaves. He leaves his bride at the altar. He runs away from the wedding, and he goes back home. Well, he, he gets home after this. Um, and settles down, tries to understand what's going on, and he comes back. A few days later, he comes back to get his bride. But the father of the bride has already given her in marriage to his best man. When that happens, his rage goes up. Remember, it's, it's revenge that gets him often. And he takes action. He goes, i got to get revenge on this. So he goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Now, in, in my mind, maybe you see a fox and you're like, oh, that's cute, a nice, cute, cuddly fox. Uh, 
Guys, there's a reason we don't have foxes as pets in our homes. They're wild animals. Um, they have claws and teeth, and they don't tame very well. They're wild animals, and he loads up 300 of them. Number one, that's pretty cool in itself that he can do that. Here's the next thing that he does. He takes them two by two, and he ties their tails together. How? I don't know. Zip ties? I, I don't know what he used back then. He gets them, and he ties their tails together, and then he attaches a torch to each one of those pairs Somehow, he lights their tails on fire, and he sends them, sends them into the fields of the Philistines to waste their crops. And he, he takes out all of their crops with these 150 pairs of foxes running through their fields, catching them on fire. Well, the Philistines get upset, and they want revenge. And you see how this revenge thing goes, right? You do a little bit, somebody else does something back, you want revenge again. So it keeps going back and forth like this. He's, um, they're upset, and so they take it out. On Samson by killing his wanted bride to be, which makes him upset. And he takes the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand Philistine men. The story's in here. Keep reading through. This is amazing, weird stuff that you can read through. This a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. The Philistines say, "Dude, we're done." White flag, we're out, um, you win, and it separates them, the Philistines and Israelites. They have some freedom now. I don't understand God. I don't understand if this was a part of his plan, if this is what he had set up, or if it happened this way. Either way, they separate. They both go to their corners, and for 20 years, there's freedom. For 20 years, Samson now becomes the judge over the Israelites. Samson leads the Israelites over the Philistines. For 20 years, things look pretty good. But his character didn't change. His character was still there with him through this whole time, and he falls again. Um, there's a quick story about him and a Philistine prostitute. He goes back into the camp of the Philistines, hires a prostitute on his way out of their camp, he tears off the city gates and takes them as a sign of rebellion that he's still over them, that he's still strong. Um, there's another story that comes along where he falls in love again with another Philistine woman. Her name is Delilah, and he wants her, and he wants to marry her, and he wants to be with her. However, this time the Philistines were ready. I mean, they're watching for him. Even after 20 years, they're ready for this guy to come back. And they're ready. He falls in love with her because of a physical attraction. And the Philistines, they want power back. So they go and they bribe this woman, Delilah, with lots of money. And say, you got to find out his secret. His fatal attraction was based on sex. Her motivation was for money. And the Philistines' motivation was power. The trifecta that gets many people in trouble. Money, sex, and power. Right? It's led to the destruction of many people. She comes to her new boyfriend, hopefully husband-to-be, and she, she, she says, if you love me, right, you'll tell me. How can you say you love me and you won't tell me who you are or where your strength comes from? And she tricks him into saying it. And he reveals this third vow that he had made to God. The one vow that was remaining that he hadn't broken yet with God, which was his hair, that his hair had never been cut. And so one night while he was sleeping, his hair got cut off. 
And the Philistines came in and they arrested him because his power was gone. They arrested him. They humiliated him. It says somewhere in there that they, they um, poked out his eyes with spoons. And they were humiliating him. And it tells us in here, and the worst part, in my opinion, is this. When his hair was cut, it says the power of the Lord left him. The power of the Lord was gone from him. That's when everything hit rock bottom for him. Rock bottom. We've all probably been somewhere like this in our lives. Can you think back to that day? When was rock bottom for you? Maybe, maybe it wasn't because of your dumb decisions. Okay, maybe you had a part in some of those, right? Maybe you did a couple things. You did. Maybe they weren't as bad as Samson's, but it still got you to where you were. Maybe it was someone else that made some bad decisions. But that day that you hit rock bottom. You didn't know where else to turn. You didn't know what else to do. It felt like you were in a two-minute warning time period. The stakes were the highest. The decisions you make next are going to determine the rest of your life. And you feel like you're out of place. You feel like the other team knows your playbook. They're inside the huddle with you. No matter what you call, it's like they're right there. You can't do anything. You remember that time period. You remember that day where you were like, I, I didn't know what to do. I was out of place. When the stakes were the highest and you didn't know a way out. I go back to this quote often. I like this quote by Corey Ten Boom. She was, um, had survived many concentration camps during the Nazi um, era. And she was asked the question one time, how did you survive through all of those camps? How did you make it? And her famous answer was this, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. I don't care how far you've run from God. I don't think some of your stories can compare to Samson's stories. I don't care how far you've gone how far you've ran, how hard you've ran away from God. There's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. And here was Samson. He had turned against himself. He had turned against his family. He had turned against his nation. He had turned against his God. But yet we catch up to him in chapter 16. If you're still there, I'd love for you to turn over there. Chapter 16, it's towards the end of his story, verse 28. It says, then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me one more time. And God was there. As far as he ran, as much as he did, God was right there, ready for him to turn back to him. And as the story ends, they brought Samson into this big room. All the Israelites wanted to see this amazing Samson. Some of them haven't seen, never seen this guy. All the stories that have been told about him. And here he was. It was not necessarily a Colosseum, but a big room. Thousands of people had come to watch and to see him be humiliated. And he prayed this prayer to God. God, give me strength one more time. And he leaned against the pillars of this building and pushed them over. The strength had returned to him. And the building fell. And in his last effort, in his last part of his life, 
says, it tells us that he killed more people, more Philistines, more people of his enemy than he did in his life before that. And even in the depths of his abandonment and slavery, turning back to God brought that strength back to him. God was there. I think there's some lessons. Before we jump away from this, I want to give you a few lessons that I think we can learn from Samson. This this is the first one. All of us sin. All of us have been there. We've all done something bad. It doesn't matter if yours looks worse than somebody else's. We're not here to compare our sins. We've all sinned. David, Solomon, Paul, your mom, right? All of us have sinned at some point in our lives. And two, we can run from God. Here's the beauty and what I love about God in this. He gives us this thing called free will. And he says, if you want to, you can run as far as you want from me. And I'll let you go. I'll let you go as far as even to the point where, you know, I'm not there. If you don't want me in your life, I'm not going to be. You can run from God if you choose to. But here's the beauty of this. I think what we see in the story is that sin is not the end. The sin in your life doesn't have to be part. It doesn't have to define you. Your sin is not the end of your life. And it doesn't stop the ability from God using you or coming through in your life. No matter what you've done, God can still use you. And God can still be a part of your life. Sin is not the end. And four, if we're ready, and if you turn to him, God is there. As far as we run, all we have to do is turn back. And even in our deepest, darkest despair, our suffering, our pain, our loneliness, all you have to do is call out to God, and he's right there. I think the worst thing that happened to Samson was when God left him. Not any of the other stuff. Which to me makes the hero of the story God. The real moral of the story really has nothing to do with Samson. It has everything to do with God. This passage is a living lesson in the grace of a mighty God. How a man was beaten, blinded, humiliated in his repeated stupidity. He reached the bottom of the barrel in his life. And he turned around and he discovered God was right there. Ready, waiting for him to turn back to him. There's nothing in this story about Samson that's heroic. There's everything that's heroic about our mighty God. And I believe that some of us need to hear this today. Maybe you've gone pretty far down a road of romance or revenge or whatever it is that is your weakness in life and that you have done or where you've been. Maybe it's not you, it's somebody else, but you're carrying around some guilt with you. I believe that a restoration of a relationship with God is not dependent on your performance. It's dependent just on you turning back to God. You see, Samson did not perform anything to get God to come back to him. He turned to God. God came back to him before he pushed the pillars over. God came back to him while he was still in his weakness, while he was still shackled. God came back to him while he was still blind. And he'll do it for you if you're willing just to turn back to him. Now, here's the difference for us. Um, We're not in the Old Testament anymore. 
We're living in a New Testament time period. We live under a new covenant. So that old um, covenant that, that I showed that list, you're like, that was weird. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to live under that one anymore, right? It's a new covenant that we live under. We don't live under the Nazarite vow. We have a new covenant with Jesus. And the new covenant with Jesus is grace because of what he has done for us. Nothing that we do ourselves, but because of his sacrifice and his love for us. Now we live under a new covenant between us and God. And God says, grace, just come back. So wherever you're at in your life, first quarter, second quarter, um, halftime, if you're right there, if you're in a two-minute warning time period, you're like, guys, I've got this decision to make. It's right in front of me, and it's going to change everything about my life. If that's where you're at, know that God hasn't left. He is right there waiting and willing to meet you right where you're at. And if that's you, I'd love to share that with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to connect with you and help you walk through it. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for your son. I'm grateful for the grace that we have, that that, that Old Testament vow, um, that you created something new and a new covenant for us to live with you under. God, I'm grateful for a story like Samson's that highlights how amazing you are for us. I'm grateful for your son, that because of his love and his sacrifice and his grace, he comes back and give something to us that we can't do ourselves. God, continue to show us and lead us and direct us and help us understand that you're right there, turning to you, believing and trusting in you. It's the best thing we can do. We're grateful. We love you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.